theme for tonight is ultimately that Jesus is the leader. Now, I know many of you, you have all kinds of different church backgrounds, some of them uh, just within Christian denominations, other folks, you have Catholic backgrounds, you have different religions maybe, uh, but let's just get on the same page when it comes to leadership in the Christian church. So whether you're a part of Crosspoint, another church, whether you stay at Crosspoint for a long time, go to another, whatever it might be, here's what you can expect. In the Bible, in the New Testament, there are two primary offices uh, not separated from the congregation, but within the congregation that are leadership. These two offices include uh, the first one, which is a little bit complicated. Uh, it's actually four different offices in one. They all mean the same thing. In the New Testament, you'll see four different words, bishop, overseer, elder, and pastor. Okay, so these are four different Greek words, but they're used by Paul, by Peter, by several people interchangeably to mean the exact same thing. Essentially, it, it's the pastor. So most churches just say, hey, the leadership there are the pastors. Uh, some will, and it's more popular today uh, than, than for quite a long time, really, it's, it's trendy right now to call them elders. Um, and then, of course, a few churches, you might be familiar with bishops or overseers of, of other kinds. But just know that all of that means one position, one office, and that is pastor. We'll talk about what that means tonight. The other one is a deacon. And so, Crosspoint, we have deacons, but we don't, um, we don't have we don't put a huge emphasis on it, essentially because deacon, in the Greek, uh, deaconos just means servant. So both men and women can be deacon or deaconesses, and this is simply servant. So they aren't necessarily decision makers. They're just examples to everyone else. Hey, we are here. We're saying we want to serve. Uh, use us however. Many of you function as deacons right now, whether you have the title or, or not. You're just servants, and um, you, we're all called to be. That. So those are the two offices that we have. And in that, we know Jesus is the head of his church. So shepherds or pastors at best are under shepherds. So it doesn't matter. Your favorite pastor, Pastor Andy, he preaches great. Man, there's several thousand people in this church that he pastors, all that. It doesn't matter who it is. At best, a pastor here on earth is only an under shepherd to Jesus. He, he is the great shepherd. So Jesus is the leader. Now, here's a few things, just so, again, 30,000-foot view of leadership in the church. Here's a few things that a pastor is not, just in case you come from a background um, that, that confused this. Uh, a pastor is not Jesus. <laughs> that may sound simple and clear, but it, it shouldn't always be assumed because some, uh, some seem to act like they are. Jesus is Jesus. Pastors are not Jesus. Pastors are not mediators. Okay, so it's good to have your pastor pray for you, but pastors are not high priests. They're not priests in and of themselves at all. We, as the church, are priesthood of believers, meaning we all have access to the Father through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for us. So it's good, again, to have a pastor pray for you, um, to speak a word over you, but it's no different, really, in the eyes of God than if you have another Christian do that or you do that for yourself. Um, so we definitely... Uh, are not, we are not um, closer to God than anyone else. And that's important because I believe, and you would think that not many people believe that. There's a good chunk of people that believe that. They believe if the pastor blesses something, if the pastor does something, uh, then it's extra special. We have no more favor in the eyes of God than anyone else. We do have more accountability. <laughs> we do have more judgment possibly coming on us than the rest of the congregation. But here are, um, to flip it, here are a couple things that the pastor in your church should be, okay? It should be a shepherd. That's the primary thing that we think of when we think of pastoral ministry. But I've studied uh, a good chunk in the New Testament as to what we are called to do as shepherds. And if there is one attribute of Christ, one, one distinct quality of Jesus Christ that a pastor takes on and is called to the most, if you had to sum up pastoral leadership and say, what, what, what should I expect the most from my pastor and his relationship to us in the congregation? It is that of a suffering servant. Jesus is the suffering servant. A pastor should be a suffering servant. It's kind of like this. Any of you watched like five years ago, that show on the Discovery Channel, 
uh, like when documentaries first started getting popular, Climbing Everest. Any of you guys ever see that one? It was all about Mount Everest, and it would have basically um, all of these Westerners, these Caucasian folks who would come from Europe or, or uh, America, whatever, they'd want to climb Mount Everest, and it would just show what it was like over a six, eight-week period as they did this, and they went from one base camp to the next, and they had to haul their gear up, and it was, oh, man, how are we going to do this? And they had all these oxygen tanks, and it was so scary, and it was just all ice, and they're going 20,000, 30,000 feet up, and it's just, um, it's a feat. And at first I watched it, and I was like, man, that's awesome. And then I started to see, like, little details that made me think, maybe something else is going on there. Like, for instance, they'd be walking, and they'd be, like, filming this, this Westerner there trying to climb up some stuff, and there'd be a ladder that looked like it had been there for a while. I was like, where'd that ladder come from? Because <laughs> I didn't see any of the white guys carrying the ladder. And then they'd be like, well, we've got to change our oxygen tanks, like, uh, this many times, otherwise we can't breathe, or, you know, blah, blah, blah. I was like, but where are the oxygen tanks at? Because I see you got one, but you're having to switch them. Something is not right. And what you come to find out here uh, is that they have Sherpas. These little Sherpas, they're, 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 they're these natives to Nepal and the area that they live at 10 to 14,000 feet, which for us, that'd be like going to the highest parts of Colorado and, and just living there. Not like 7,000 feet, like most Colorado, like no, 14,000 feet. This is super high. They are the ones who are hired to come in and to serve and to carry the load for everyone else. Nobody talks about the service. It's all about how these Westerners maybe at best can reach the summit once in their lifetime, and yet Sherpa, these Sherpas are paid to go up and down and up and down, and nobody's saying a word about how they conquered Everest like 6,000 times. But you don't hear much about the Sherpas. And that should be like a pastor. You probably shouldn't hear much about pastors. Because they're pointing to the king at the top of the summit. And they're carrying the load with the rest of the people. And they're in the background. And I think because we put folks on stages and because of the nature of teaching and preaching, it's easy, easy, easy to exalt pastors in ways that we never should have. We should be suffering servants who are willing to do the dirty work and, and to serve in ways um, that most are not, okay? And so that's, that's who we should be. As we walk through this, I want you to ask yourself a question, and this may seem very simple, but um, it'll make sense as I challenge you throughout tonight. And that is, what does a healthy relationship between you and your leadership look like? What does a healthy relationship look like? Because we both have roles in this, and we're in this together. So let's walk through this and ultimately see how Jesus is the leader. First half of verse 17, just right out the gate, the author says, very simply, obey your leaders and submit to them. Obey your leaders and submit to them. So let's park there for a second. Here is your role. Now, I, I say your role, but no, this is also my role because I got pastors over me too, right? And any pastor should have other pastors keeping him accountable too. But the role of the congregation is to submit and obey the leadership. Uh, let me say this. People have asked over the years, why in the world do we, like at Crosspoint, have a membership class? We have what we call the journey class. Why, why do we have membership in the church? Is this a biblical thing? Is it, is it something we're going to find in the New Testament? Listen, when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are welcomed into the church. You are part of his body. You don't have to go through some membership class. But here, let me tell you this. This is why I find it so incredibly valuable. Because we come from a culture of broken families where individuals come from church to church to church looking for who's going to feed them, who's going to help them the most, what do they enjoy the most, and they bounce and they bounce and bounce. And, and now keep in mind, all of you got to Crosspoint somehow, so I know that you guys have been probably to other churches more than likely. There's some good reasons, some healthy reasons, for leaving one local body to go to another. It's all part of the same body, but we come from a, a, a generation that doesn't know what family looks like, and, and we're broken because mamas and daddies have left one another and brothers and sisters have left one another. And we take that broken family life culture into the church and we just swap congregations all the time. So church membership is so incredibly important because when somebody walks in here and says, I want to be part of Crosspoint, and this comes up, 
obey and submit to your leaders. How in the world am I going to know? Now, you would think, well, that just applies because we're all Christians, right? And it does to a degree. But how can I hold someone accountable and they hold me accountable if we haven't committed to one another? Like, they, they could just be visiting for the weekend. Do they still obey and submit to some degree? But what you find are people who don't really commit to any church. They don't say, this is my home. We're going to work it out. When we get sick and tired of each other, we're going to work it out. When you tick me off, we're going to work it out. We're in this together. It'll get messy, but we're going to work it out. If you got people without that attitude, then pastors don't know, can we hold you accountable? And, And the congregation doesn't know, hey, are you there for me? And it's just ambiguous. And so... Church membership offers the opportunity for you to sit here and me to sit here and look each other in the eye and say, are we in this thing together? Like, can we do this? Let's, let's do this. And, and that's why this is important. So right off the bat, again, the author gives us two commandments. He says, you got to obey and you got to submit. Now, there's a couple things here. Number one, obey. That means that we're going to trust Okay, we're going to do what you say, but we're going to trust that what you're saying is coming from God. And submit, in the Greek, the obey is actually a weaker word in, in some way than the submit is. Submit is that you're going to, even if you disagree with them, you're going to yield your will to theirs. And you're, it means you're going to create space for their will, even though like you could step into that space. And saying you're going to yield yours. And you're going to do what they say. Now, keep in mind, um, I know that sounds offensive in our culture that hears obey and submit and says, no, no, you don't. Don't you tell me to do that. But I'm not telling you. The Bible is. So there's two assumptions with this. Number one, if he's, if he's telling you to obey, that means that church leadership is going to ask you to do something. So there's got to be something to obey. And, and if he's telling you to submit, that must mean the assumption is there's going to be times where you don't want to obey. There's going to be times where it's going to be hard. And he's saying, just submit, submit. You see, two things are needed if you're going to obey and submit. Number one, you've got to trust them. I think in a lot of cases, there's just a general lack of trust. That the congregation's like, I like your preaching style, I like this, but I don't, I don't know if I truly trust you. Like, uh, like yeah, I see your flaws, and I see, uh, you know there's flaws, and every single leader you're ever going to meet outside of Jesus Christ, there's going to be flaws. But do you truly trust? Well, I'm just having a hard time submitting to him, so they're younger than me, or they haven't been here as long as me, or I'm just, eh, nah. Do you trust that God said, I want this person to lead? He's still, at best, an under-shepherd. He's under me. Do you trust that I put them there? And are you willing to submit even when you disagree? And so that takes humility. So you've got to have trust to obey, and you've got to have humility to submit. Now keep in mind, this verse is not conditional on things like your preference or your style, or your opinions. It is, however, if you look at the whole scope of Scripture, conditional on things like, the pastor better not be a heretic, (laughs) okay? Better have solid doctrine. The pastor better love you and care for your soul. Okay, there's, there's conditions, but they're usually not the conditions you and I like to have when it comes to obeying and submitting, okay? This is fun. I can tell you guys are eating it up. This is, uh, it's not that hard for me. I don't know if you knew that or not, but this is pretty easy to preach. It's good. Just remember, this applies as much to me as it does to you. So what do you do? Let's just be honest. What, what, what do you do when you're faced with this? Uh, what's your natural tendency? Because you know what the typical ones that pop up, like you're going to fight for your way. Maybe you're going to discredit their opinion. Maybe you're going to justify your actions. If you've ever been called out by someone, by a leader in the church, or asked to do something that makes you uncomfortable, I know there's all kinds of things. There's all kinds of issues that arise. At worst, here's the one that, that, that really, I mean, this one is just straight from the devil. And that is, 
whether it's fighting for your own way, justifying your action, or discrediting their opinion. When you try to get others to believe what you feel about the situation, there is a disunity that God has seen in his church that is not healthy. That's actually a taste of hell. When you think of hell, separation from God, both a physical place but also an understanding we are separated from God, when there's disunity in the church knowing Jesus said, my church will be known for two things. By an unbelieving world, they're going to know you're my people because you love one another and because you're unified. And when there is a lack of unity in the church, there's a little bit of a taste of hell on earth. Sometimes you don't always feel it, but it's there. It's there. Keep in mind, this whole thing is in the context that the pastor is not to lord over you, meaning they don't use their title as a way of getting you to do something, and they don't ask you to do stuff they're not willing to jump in the mess and do themselves. Okay? This is, you gotta, you got to understand, you don't just do it, and, and there's no conditions for them. Like, pastors got conditions on their end, in which we'll talk about for just a little bit. But here's the thing. You read this, and you think, okay, I get it. Obey your leaders and submit to them. I don't really see churches that have a big issue with that. Other than the one church I heard where there was like a church split and then there was a weird business meeting and it was like this Baptist church and I heard one time that like a deacon got up and yelled at another guy and the guy like punched him in a business meeting. Oh, that's crazy. Like I couldn't believe that. Like you hear randomly that kind of stuff once in a great while. But I don't think that a lack of this is usually looking like a drag, like a, like a knockdown drag out fight. I think it usually looks, when, the, when this doesn't happen in the congregation, I think it usually looks like this just sad. It looks like a group of people that get to the end of their lives and they look back at their, their, their experiences at the church and they think of, I woulda, coulda, shouldas. Let me explain. Out of all the God stories I've shared with you, the least amount have come from our time when we were in Virginia. We came to Virginia. We didn't know if God was going to have us plant a church when we were out there for school or if we are going to be part of an existing church. And, and then we felt like he was saying, you're going to be part of both. And so we ended up planting, as you know. But we were part of that old school existing church, that one that was 236 years old. And, and the people in there, like, I, I love them. I think, I think that Jesus loves them, and, and he's not done with them yet. Okay, so I need to make sure I say that. With that being said, they hired a friend of mine. And when they did so, they heard his vision for outreach. They heard his passion to reach the community and to grow as disciples. Like they knew what they were getting. And they said, lip service, they said, we want this to happen. Because we're a church of 50. And even though we got a bunch of money in the bank, we're just a small country church who seems like our glory days are behind us. But we want those back. Right? When, you, when, when the ship is sinking, you'll say a whole bunch of stuff to get it to float again, right? But then once someone comes and says, let's make this float, eh, I don't feel like, <laughs> I don't feel like doing that now. And so they hired him, and he preached week after week after week, just passionate gospel stuff, and it's good. And then we do some outreach stuff. We had people come, and we did, we did all kinds of outreach events. But we saw the congregation Many of these folks grew up in this church. We saw them start to get a little more hardened as they saw the church change. Okay, If you're going to reach out to people, that might mean new people come to the church. Now you can't sit in that seat anymore. You can't have all of the specific things you like the same way. And this actually means you, you're going to have to go with the flow a bit. And all of a sudden, the hurrahs in his preaching started to turn into this. And it got to the point where finally, as many of you know, he left. They got another pastor, another young seminary guy. I knew him too. He was another friend. And they just went on and they're still doing the same stuff they did five years ago, which was the same stuff they did 20 years ago, which was the same stuff they did 100 years ago. They're comfortable and they're complacent. And I think that's what happens when a group of people go from, let's do whatever it takes to reach people, to, hey, pastor, you're telling us we should get out and do stuff and we should do, and you start to do this number You'd say there was a lack of obedience and submission, but it wasn't, it was more just, this is sad. We could have been so much more. I don't ever want to be a part of that. I don't ever want to be a part of that. Let me ask you this, and, and I'm going to pick on the older generation, uh, if there are any in here tonight. I'm going to pick on you a little bit. Don't worry, the young folks are coming here in a second. There are mindsets that come into a church like Crosspoint 
you come in and you see, wow, it's young and things are happening, great, wonderful. But there are things oftentimes uh, that you bring from, from different styles, different traditions, and, and you, you enjoy the preaching. But your heart is kind of doing this number when it comes to getting out of your comfort zone because you're scared, because you say things like, well, we've never done it that way before. You say, well, I don't know. In your mind, you're semi-retired from ministry as if that was possible. And you start to underestimate how much God wants to use you and how much life you got left in you. Let me ask you this. Is your heart doing this number? And unintentionally, you're hindering the growth of the church because you are not that concerned about getting out of your box. About your own spiritual growth. It's not just a young man's game. God wants you to grow as much when you're 70 years old as he does when you're seven. It's good to challenge your heart in things like that. I have to challenge my heart. And for the rest of us, let's just say, I'm parking on this for a while, I know. You're still looking at this and you're thinking, I don't think it applies to me. Let me tell you this. It's easy to give God lip service and to say, I'm teachable and I submit. And, and when God asks me to do something, I do it. But God has given the church leaders and a great a great way to show if you can submit to God or not is whether you can submit to leaders. Because if you can't submit to the physical, tangible people he's put in front of you, chances are you're not going to obey a God who's invisible. Who you can get away with not obeying and no one even knows oftentimes. That what you do to the leaders he puts in place is usually what you're doing behind the scenes in your prayer life when he asks you to do stuff. The rest of verse 17 says, now here's my role, our role. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So the role of leadership in the church is that we've got to keep an account. We've got to keep watch. Over you. It says, keeping a watch over your souls. It isn't saying that we save you. This isn't necessarily about salvation as much as it is spiritual health. You go down to Genesis, the YMCA, their, their first inclination is going to be to uh, take care of your short term physical health. The pastors in your church should be caring about your long term spiritual health. We're watching over your souls. We, we know there needs to be spiritual health. And that's our job. It says, let them do it with joy. Let them do it with joy. They feel the weight of accountability, or they better feel it. But let them do this with joy. What happens? If you don't, listen, if you don't obey and submit, they're not going to do it with joy. They're not going to do it with joy. And you say, eh, I don't know how big of a deal that is. It's a huge deal. Because there's joy stealers all over the place. And most people in a congregation don't realize that they might be joy stealers for the leaders around them. It comes in all kinds of forms. Let me pick on the young folks, young men. When God was calling me to be a leader, and I was a young pup, I thought, man, I was, I was still pretty new to the faith, but I thought, you know what? There's some things that can change around this church. I was part of Cross Point way back in the day in Hutchinson. Before you knew it, I, I stopped listening to the sermons except for the stuff that I didn't like. And, and afterwards, I'd get together with my buddies, and I'd tell them about all the things we need to change. And before you knew it, I was a professional church critic. And the more I learned about God, the more I learned about the Bible, and the more you would think I would mature, I had put myself in a box of being the one who can say whatever's wrong. Like I, could, I could find from a mile away what's wrong with our church, but I wasn't doing much about it. And there's a whole bunch of those people that come around and they, they say, you know what, let's change this, let's do that, let's do this. But I'm just going to sit here and diagnose the problem and not help anything. You want to you steal the joy of your leaders? <laughs> Go up and say, this is how you stink. And by the way, I'm not going to help. Great. Thanks. Young ladies. This isn't just for young ladies. 
But there's so many times where you hear them and see young ladies strengthened in the word and the gospel is sinking in and it looks like they're finding their value and identity and, and you're like, yes, man, progress is being made and yet they, they still find themselves swaying so much with the ways of this world and their hearts and, and, and just their emotions and so they, they come and they say, well, I'm not gonna date, uh, man, I'm, 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 just, I'm not gonna date right now, I'm gonna find, I'm gonna find what I need in Christ and I'm, I'm just, I'm planting there and then you don't see them for three weeks and, and you notice they've been dating someone on Facebook now for like two and a half weeks, and then they're brokenhearted in four weeks, and they come back and they say, I did it again, I fell into the same trap, and you're just like, oh my gosh, come on, like are you listening, are you doing anything that you're hearing, and it just sways back and forth, and it just rips the heart out of the teachers who are like, is this, is, is anything even coming from teaching this, like, you care for the people care for them, and you got to safeguard your joy. Pastors got to make sure they safeguard their joy. Listen, there are some of you, I hope, I pray, some of you today are being called into leadership. You're being groomed by God to be a pastor, to be a leader in the church. And up until now, your own joy in the Lord has been uh, a good thing, but not absolutely necessary for you to live. And you're kind of ho-hum about it. And so some days you have good days, and other days you're not in the Word, and you're not talking, you don't, you're just not finding joy in Christ. And, and it wasn't that big of a deal two years ago. I'm telling you what, this is a huge deal, and you got to fight for it. you got to dig into the word. you got to jump in to prayer so long as you find joy. you got to keep on going and digging because you can't minister out of a joy that don't exist. What you're, what you're ministering to people is what you got inside you, and you got to fight to keep that joy. you got to fight for it. There's a weird feeling that comes to pastoral leadership. I didn't, I didn't know about this. I heard about some of the, the things that happen when you become a pastor and, and just what it's like, but I, I didn't know it. And it took me like two years, two years to find out what this was. But I found early on I started to get these sick feelings in my stomach. Like uh, I, would, I would get a phone call, someone in the congregation would be hurting, or, or there was some sin that was tearing up a family, or sometimes, worst case scenario, people were sick and people died. And I remember I getting to the point early in ministry where I would just beg God. I would come to him in prayer at daylight and be like, God, I just feel sick. I feel so sick. I, I have a hard time being with my wife and, and not being stressed out. I, I find myself waking up in the middle of the night and praying for people randomly. I find myself going to bed just thinking of the people in the church and, and praying for them. And I wake up and I'm still thinking about them. I find myself texting and calling randomly as God puts people in my mind. And, and I, I fear that when I'm with my family eating dinner that like I'm going to get that phone call that gives me this feeling again, or I would always tell Tara, like, I hope this feeling, this sickness that is deep down in my gut, I hope this doesn't come when I'm on the road, right? Because it's just, it just tears me up physically. And I thought I was just weak. I thought maybe, maybe I just kind of stink at life. Maybe I'm just not a very good pastor. Maybe I just don't know how to handle stress. And I remember begging God, take this away from me. I can't, I can't have a life of ministry if I'm going to feel this sick all the time whenever things happen to the people in the church. And he said very clearly to me, Ryan, that sick feeling is love. That's what happens when you actually love them. And they're heartbroken, and so you're heartbroken. And they're sick, so you're sick. And they tell you stories, and you don't just listen and move on, but you hear them and you feel for them. This is what it means to be a pastor. I'm not taking this away from you. Matter of fact, it might get worse. And then I was like, oh. And in those moments, I realized it is more important than ever to safeguard your joy. Because there is, again, this, this crumpling of your intestines <laughs> that takes place when you love a group of people that if you don't have joy, you're just going to be a sick fella walking around trying to help other sick fellas. You've got to have some joy to be able to pour back into people. And you've got to safeguard it. So number one, pastors need to safeguard their joy. But number two, the congregation needs to fan that into flame. That's good. He says that if you don't, 
like this is going to be of no advantage to you. Again, the assumption, uh, the assumption is that pastors are here to profit you. Maybe your translations say profit instead of advantage. We're here for your good. We're here to bless you. It should be a good thing. So what do pastors do? It says to keep watch over your souls. What what does this mean? Now I'm going to take four quick things from all of Scripture, but primarily from the book of Hebrews. Number one, pastors keep watch over God's word. In chapter 13, verse 7, I'll use that reference a couple times in this, they, they were credible men of God. Remember earlier he told us that we should listen. In verse 7, we should imitate the faith of the leaders who were before them. Why? Because they were men of the word of God. The job of a pastor to watch over a flock is to make sure we guard the doctrine of the church, the teaching, that we fight for it, that we keep it central, that we're preaching the whole counsel of God. That's why we walk verse by verse through books of the Bible and not just jumping around because we've got to teach the whole thing no matter how hard it is. Number two, pastors keep watch, making sure they're pointing to Jesus. In chapter 12 of Hebrews, Verse 2, it says, to fix our eyes on the perfecter and author of our faith, Jesus Christ. You've got to have people in the congregation, namely pastors, who are fighting for the attention of the congregation. Not for themselves, not for their funny jokes, not for how they preach, not for where they want to go. They've got to be fighting to keep eyes on Jesus. Because it naturally drifts onto all kinds of things. Well, let's just, let's just get a bigger, better building because we should. And let's just do more um, of this activity on the community. And let's just do this in the programs of the church. Like there's things that are good, but like you've got to make sure this is the gospel and we're pointing to Jesus. And like if nobody else is going to say it, I'm going to say it all the time. And I'm never going to assume that we're just always fixing our eyes on Jesus. I'm just going to talk about Jesus all the stinking time. That's my job. That's my joy. Number three, they keep a watch over themselves. So they watch over the word, they watch for Jesus, and they watch their own conduct. Again, in in chapter 13, verse 7, it said that you should imitate their faith. That means the character of your leaders needs to be something that is carefully watched. Pray for the character of your leaders. Don't get to be a reactive church to where you see on the news or you read some blog about some pastor in California who had an affair, and you're like, how in the world could that have happened? I don't know. But I think as a church, even when you see your pastors excelling in their character and their morality, you need to be praying in advance to make sure the enemy doesn't tear them down. They are human. But it's my job to keep a watch over it first and foremost and make sure that I am pure before you. And number four, it's to watch out for you. Chapter 10, verse 25, says that we need to encourage each other. Some of the church had stopped meeting together and that we need to encourage and spur one another on to to good works, that we need to carry one another's burdens. We gotta love y'all. We gotta love you and we gotta help you as you live out the commands of Christ together. Bottom line, If you're a pastor or you aspire to be, you need to know this is serious business and we will be held accountable for it. Moving on just a little bit. Verse 18 and 19 say, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. If you didn't believe this is serious, he's like, hey, I'm talking about y'all leaders, but me as the author, like, pray for us because we got to have clear conscience. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. The author, he wanted to come visit them. He wanted to be around them. And so he's saying, pray that God open doors that I can come and be around you. Third thing we see is you got to pray for your leaders. you got to pray for your leaders. You guys have heard this a gazillion times, but that's because it's in the Bible a gazillion times. So, What happens when leaders are wrong? What do you do when we talk about obeying and submitting, but sometimes leaders are are wrong on things? Well, number one, you go back to Matthew 18, and you take it to them one-on-one. I hope 
I pray. I know that I can be um, kind of punkish, and, and I'm serious, and I'm a little bit aggressive, and it's just my personality. I hope that you guys know you can come to me, that if I say something crazy that's not true, that, that I'm airing, uh, whether it be a Wednesday night or Sunday morning, whenever, that you can come up and talk to me and say, man, I'm just unsure about what you said. This is unsure. Let's talk about that. Those are, those are good conversations for us to have if, indeed, I say something crazy. So what do you do then when leaders are wrong? Number one, you come to them, and then if they don't listen, you come with a couple of them, and if they still don't listen, then you take them before the church. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, um, Paul tells Timothy that they should uh, be careful, the congregation should, not to come and, and bring a charge against the pastors, the leaders, unless they have two or three witnesses. But then after that, it says, you know what? It, it basically, if he is wrong, then you guys need to bring him into the presence of everybody. There's going to be a rebuke so that nobody else wants to make the same stupid mistakes. That sounds harsh, but that's good for pastors to hear. <laughs> so certainly there's a time to talk to them. But here's the bottom line. You get ticked off by your pastor, and you need to know it's coming. I've always told everyone, and I don't say this as an excuse, but like if you're ever under the assumption that Pastor Andy's not going to tick you off, that I'm not going to tick you off, it's going to happen. Sometimes, and I pray it, it happens in a pure way because the Word of God is being preached, and it's coming just clashing with our sinful desires. Okay, that, that, That's a good way. But sometimes it's just because we're flawed, and we, we screw up. I think about preaching 45-minute sermons, and I think to myself sometimes, man, I don't usually come away thinking, oh, I said some really stupid things. But if I open my mouth to anybody for 45 minutes straight, there's probably going to be some goofy things that come out. I don't know who can contain their goofiness that well. But I know sometimes I can't. So you might get ticked off. You might want to leave the church. You, you might get upset. There's all kinds of things, but if you act, like, be honest, how do you really, if, if you want the pastor to change, if they need to change, you think that's going to accomplish something? One thing that's going to happen is they're going to keep on doing it to the next person. If you want to change something, again, you talk to them, but number two, you pray for them. Prayer is what's going to change. When we were in Utah, we had a mission team from Kansas. It was actually the youth from Crosspoint Hutch. And they came out there. They planned this trip for months and months and months. And there's like 25, 30 of them. And, and half of them were doing this kids camp for us all week long. The other half was fixing up the church parsonage. And so they were ripping off all the siding, and they were going to put new siding. They'd spent out of their own money like $3,000, hauled it from Kansas on a big old trailer over the mountains, and they were going to do this for us. It was a huge blessing, just a crazy blessing. I grew up in a tiny town. And we did not have to get permits for anything. You need to, that's the context. <laughs> We're halfway through this project. A little Ford Ranger pulls up. We're, we're in Podunk, Price, Utah. Um, to me, that's small town stuff still. Pulls up, guy gets out, short, little guy, skinny guy, but he's got his cowboy boots on, his big old 10-gallon cowboy hat. He's got a mustache that goes down to here. Like, he, he is like something out of a cartoon, and he looks at me, he knew somehow I was in charge, and he said, partner, you're in a heap of trouble. And I was like, this ain't good. They had, they had all the siding ripped off, and they had found out that there was no, this is an old mining town, there was no um, insulation in this house, and, and, and so they had put insulation in. They're like halfway done with this project. And he says, you didn't get permits for any of this, did you? And I was like, no, <laughs> I did not. I didn't even think about it, actually. And he said, and then he looked at it, and he saw, like, ten things wrong immediately. You know, if you dealt with inspectors, you should pray for inspectors. <laughs> but you should. Anyway. And he said, you're going to have to rip all this off. It was just so depressing. All the kids were standing there. They heard about this. And I'm just talking to him. And he was ticked off. And, and he, he wasn't backing down. And I saw some of the students just go over, like four or five of them. They just go over and they start standing in a circle. I could tell they were praying. And I knew they were praying. And as we talked with them longer, he was still ticked off. But like I was praying. I could, you could just tell that all the Christians that were praying for this because it was miserable. And the whole thing was going to be wrecked. And they were leaving in a day. And we were just going to have no siding. And we ain't got no money. And we don't have insulation. This is not good at all. 
on a dime in the middle of our conversation. I can't tell you what we were talking about. On a dime, his tone of voice changed. His his posture towards us went from super defensive, you're in trouble, to, well, why didn't you say so? Somehow we got to talking about some Christian camp member. We're in Mormon country. We're not assuming he's a Christian, and I still don't think he was. Some Christian camp, his uncle ran like 200 miles south, and some group from Kansas had come to help with it years early. Just random stuff that somehow when he heard these youth were coming from Kansas and they were Christians, everything changed. Minutes later, he left and said, here, you go pay your $100 this afternoon for these permits that you didn't get, and you can keep on going. There wasn't a doubt in anyone's mind after he left that prayer changed something. You want to change your leadership heart. You don't go to your friends and complain about what they are or aren't doing. You don't, you don't just get up and go to the next church. You pray for them. You're not doing the kingdom of God a service by just going on to the next thing. You're doing a service by praying for these people. And if your goal is not just to be right in whatever conflict you might have with your leadership, but unity, that unity only comes by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's only going to come in prayer. You can talk it out all day long. But at the end of the day, you've got to have the Holy Spirit ripping old Ryan Booth's heart apart and saying, Ryan, you are wrong. Repent. I wish I could say, man, I'm just so incredibly humble that, like, I just wake up and I repent every day about everything. But every single one of us, we need the Spirit of God to do the work. You can tell all your friends and family, you guys should change. You're living in sin. They're going to look at you and say, no, thanks. They need the Spirit to convict. And that only comes in prayer. But let's be honest. Let's be honest. The problem for most of us when it comes to being obedient and submitting is that we might do it, but we're going to build up some resentment and bitterness towards those around us. Some of you, we're not just talking about church leaders. We're talking about your boss. We're talking about people around you, maybe even your parents. And you're like, you know what? I did it, but my heart just got twice as hard, (laughs) and and, uh, and I'm getting angry. Prayer is not only going to help in that, but prayer is going to give you for one another what you needed in the first place, and that's love. You've got to love them. And sitting in front of the throne of God is how you're going to love your brothers and sisters and your leaders. Because when, when, when we go to the throne and we're trusting, hoping that they're going to the throne, prayer takes your jacked up behavior and my jacked up behavior and it puts it in the presence of the perfect holy God of the universe. And so we start to see our junk in light of his perfection and conviction comes. And hearts are changed. So some of you are worried because you're like, I just don't know how I'm going to handle the situation or what I'm going to say to them or what do I do. If you're not coating it in prayer, you don't have much of a hope. What do you think, how suave and debonair are your words that you're going to be able to come to someone and convince them of some wrongdoing and they're just going to be transformed? You've never been able to do that. Nobody can do that. But God can do that. Last but not least, now may the God of peace, verse 20, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Christ Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is the leader. We'll read the last few verses just in passing at the end, but this is the last time we'll stop here. Jesus is the leader. So the author, doing what all good leaders do, he unifies the church, not by just saying, hey, you need to do this or you need to do that. He says, hey, I'm going to point you to Jesus and I'm going to point you to purpose. I'm going to point you to mission. We see all kinds of beautiful words in here. We talk about peace. We talk about this eternal covenant. We talk about the blood that gives us. And we see this, the great shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep. 
tell you what, when it, when it comes to this stuff right here, this is what Hebrews is all about, this new covenant we have in Christ. There is nothing, there is nothing, I don't care if it's Crosspoint or some other church, there's no drama, there's no issues that you can face with your leadership that you cannot work out. There's nothing you can face that you can't work out when this is our context for life. There's nothing that the blood doesn't cover. There's nothing that the great shepherd can't fix. Tell you what, if you if you if you don't know this by now, I hope it's sinking in just a little bit more. If you want rest in your life, if you want spiritual rest, there's nothing. <laughs> this is this is gospel. There's nothing that's going to give you rest more than a deeper understanding and abiding in the sovereignty of God. When you see how big and huge and in charge God is, and you take anything that comes across your life, any drama you got, any junk you got, and you just realize, if I truly believe he is God, not only in the good times, but in the bad times, not only in the bad times, but the horrible times, not only in the horrible times, but the times that I just want to end this. And you start to see God's sovereignty in all that. There's a rest and a freedom and a peace that comes over the soul that just says, he's got it. He's got it. Nothing can happen. What, what's the most that they can do to me? Kill me? Jesus said, what's the most they can do? What can man do to you? Kill you? God's got this. They can't take away your soul. They can't damn you to hell. They can't change any of that. There's so much rest in God's sovereignty. And the church and the way we work together is no different. And this goes for your boss. This goes for the president or the soon-to-be president of the United States. You can freak out. You can worry all day long. Ain't nobody going to be doing something on earth that God isn't aware of, and he's able to allow it, and he's able to crush it when he wants. He's able to discipline and work through it to get to you. He's able to do whatever he wants. Hebrews 13 talks about obeying your leaders in the church. Romans 13 talks about obeying and submitting to the authorities in the secular world, no matter how jacked up they are. And you're going to see the same theme in both of them. You need to pray for them. You need to obey them. Why? And in both chapters, you'll see, because God is sovereign. And he made them, even in Romans 13, in the secular world, as crazy as it sounds. Go back and read it. It says, he made them, we're talking about Obama, We're talking about your least favorite of the politicians. He made them ministers. They're non-believers. Well, that doesn't even make sense. It's because God's so sovereign that he uses the most crazy, jacked-up people, and he chooses them to work for his glory. And we get so scared because we're like, well, they're in power. What do we do? Well, our great shepherd is still the great shepherd, and he's still guiding this thing. That also means that every success that this church or any other church in this world experiences, that we don't crown our pastor's king. I love Pastor Andy. He's a great preacher. But he's just a man. And he's got his own flaws like you and I got flaws. And it's easy when we see him on a video screen and when we see this thing go from 100 people to 3,000 people and who knows what's going to happen in the future to say, man, he's something, just a little something more than special. No, he's the same Andy Haddis that was a sinner going to hell that God saved and redirected and he's using. We don't attribute the successes to any pastor outside of Jesus Christ. And on the flip side, no matter what happens in this church or any other church, no matter what the failure is, no matter what the screw up, no matter how how sad the situation is, there's nothing we can't go to and say, God, we know you're in charge. This is your church. We as human beings couldn't build it, and we can't tear it down. But Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. Why? Because he's the great shepherd, and he's in charge. And 
and you say, well, I don't think that like this is going to go too bad. Don't start thinking that Crosspoint somehow is super special because we got sweet music and we got lights and we got awesome sermon. Paul told the Ephesians, who was a solid church, he sat there in Acts chapter 20 when he was about to sail away and said, I love you. You're never going to see me again. You're going to bawl your eyes out. I'm going to bawl my eyes out because I'm going to death. But I'm going to tell you what, you're going to have some good times. And oh, by the way, wolves are going to come and try to trash this thing that you call church. Oh, and by the, by the, by the way, some of those wolves are going to come from within the church. I doubt the Ephesians were like, <laughs> that's true. Wait, what did he say? I'm not, I, me? I don't think Judas was sitting around saying, like, I can't wait to tear this thing up. But even he did. Somebody asked him the, the other day, he asked me in the church, he said, Ryan, what do we do? What, like, I'm just worried that this is the Andy show. How, how as leaders, are we going to safeguard against this? I said, number one, we're going to point you to Jesus. Number two, you're going to repent of idolatry if that ever happens, that you start to see it as the Andy show. I don't know what else to tell you. Now, on a practical level, there are things we're doing to make sure we have other pastors and that Andy is just one of many and not the top dog. There's only one senior pastor in the church of God. It's Jesus. You can be a lead teaching, preaching pastor. You can be all kinds of stuff. But you're not the great shepherd. Not only that, but in verse 21, it says, we're going to be equipped to do everything good that you may do his will. He reminds us of the purpose. We're doing this together. We're doing this together. Let's wrap it up here with the very end. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. So do what I say. Please do what I say. I'm encouraging you. For I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released. So we wonder who in the world wrote Hebrews. It, it more than likely wasn't Paul, but it's probably one of the disciples of Paul. It wasn't Timothy. might have been uh, Silas. It could be any of those guys. Titus has been released. With whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Who's the saints? The church. The church. Those who come from Italy, so he's probably writing from Italy, send you greetings. And then verse 25, grace be with all of you. This is Hebrews. This is the book. Grace gets the final word. I hope that you have found a rest in the gospel. I hope that throughout the last six months of walking through this, your understanding of the new covenant compared to the old, that your understanding of Jesus as supreme and superior to every other prophet, to every other man of God, to every everyone has grown, and that your love for him has grown in the midst of all that. I hope you're pumped up for the mission of God to make disciples. And I hope that you're just absolutely bent towards reminding yourself of this good news of Jesus every single day. That's why we read the word of God. I don't know about you, I need to be reminded of this every single day. Look forward to 1 Samuel. We'll jump in next week. Let's go ahead and pray.